This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, so the U.S., as well as many other parts of the world, but we're talking about the U.S. today, has a well-established farming tradition and livestock is a huge part of that. Uh, so when you think about American farming, you may envision herds of cattle or pig farms or even free-range chickens. Uh, when you think about what the livestock landscape looks like. But there was a time when a very different animal was being considered as a potential source of meat. Uh, this is one of those episodes that turned into two because there is so much wild and really enjoyable stuff here. And even so, uh, two of the main characters could easily fill episodes on their own outside of what we include in this episode. And there's even more to this story than we could include in two episodes. But today we're going to talk about those two men and their early lives and what led them to a really wild partnership where they were working to try to convince the U.S. Congress, the press and wealthy investors that hippo bacon was the food that should be on American plates. I really did just say hippo bacon. <laughs> That's such um, a bad idea. <laughs> this is such a wild story because that in and of itself is kind of like a, when I have told people that this is what I was researching to talk about, that sends them into peals of laughter and like they're very excited to talk about it. But then there's so much more because this is a story with spies in it, swampland, Congress, wars, as well as, of course, hippos. So in 1910, the United States was really facing a big meat shortage. Immigration had caused a huge surge in population, and the meat industry really couldn't keep up. Its attempts to keep up had led to some pretty dicey and disgusting practices. And additionally, overgrazing of food animals had caused really serious damage to the lands where cattle were normally raised. Things were becoming dire enough that people were considering using dogs as food, which is a normal part of cuisine in other parts of the world, but is definitely taboo in the United States. Yeah, basically, there were a lot of people brainstorming a lot of different ways that we could supplement the meat um, supply here in the U.S. as things were getting really, really quite dire for a lot of people. Uh, but the grazing lands that still did work, that were still viable, were already occupied by cattle. And a lot of them, as we said, were in terrible shape, even for that. However, one thing that is very prevalent, particularly in the southeast, are swamps and bayous. And they were not being used for farming. Uh, they were largely regarded at this point as wasteland. And moreover, uh, the floating water hyacinth that was found in these swamplands was growing out of control. Water hyacinth had originated in the Amazon basin, and it's considered an invasive nuisance plant because it can choke up natural waterways and it's extremely heavy. An acre, which is a little less than half a hectare, uh, of these plants can weigh as much as 200 tons, which is uh, more than 181,000 kilograms. And the water hyacinth was introduced to the U.S. in 1884 at the New Orleans Exposition, and it was a gift from the Japanese delegation. But once it was accepted as a gift and moved into the area, it spread at a downright alarming rate. 
Water hyacinth actually grows more quickly than any other tested plant. Uh, within 70 years of reaching Florida, this plant had covered an estimated 126,000 acres, that's 50 hectares, of waterways, and it made them very difficult to traverse by boat. It was really clogging up the existing system. Um, I imagine crowding out other uh, other plant and animal life. Correct. To fight the overgrowing plant species and to try to provide a new answer to what the media was calling the meat question, Robert Broussard, who was a congressman from Louisiana, hatched a plan. They would import hippos. The hippos would theoretically eat all the hyacinth, and then they would be used for their meat. But Broussard couldn't convince the rest of Congress that his idea would work without help from some experts. Uh, in addition to a researcher named William Newton Irwin, who actually specialized in fruit trees, but was very interested in the viability of this hippo idea, Broussard brought two men together for his team of experts named Frederick Russell Burnham and Fritz Duquesne. Frederick Russell Burnham was an explorer and a really intense man. He's rumored to be one of the potential inspirations for Indiana Jones. He thought that, quote, civilizing Africa was an important effort. Yeah, that's kind of just a quick, we're going to talk a lot more about him in a minute, but that sort of gives you an idea of kind of who he was in terms of being an explorer and a a conqueror of sorts. Uh, On the other hand, Fritz Duquesne was a chameleon. Uh, He was, and this is one of those words that we're going to get a million pronunciation corrections on, because there are many different ways to say it. Um, The Dutch or Afrikaans version, my understanding is boer, but... Boer is very uh, common in the when you, you're a native English speaker. Yeah, or even uh, like just or even bore. <laughs> yeah, there are yeah. lots he, of ways people say this word. So uh, his family were descendants of Dutch settlers who had moved to Africa. And Duquesne really has a fascinating life story. He used numerous aliases throughout his life and in many ways was considered a grade A con man. Both Burnham and Duquesne had fought in the Second Boer War on opposite sides. The Second Boer War, also called the South African War or the Anglo-Boer War, went on from October 11, 1899 to May 31, 1902. Great Britain went to war against two Boer republics, the South African Republic and the Orange Free State. This was an expensive war for Britain though their troops really far outnumbered the Boer troops uh, at 500,000 British troops to the Boers' 88,000. Yeah, you would think they were, uh, they they had the enemy so outgunned that it would be a quick in and out, but uh, it really cost them a lot, both to send the people there in the first place and to maintain it. Uh, So in this war, Burnham worked as a spy for the British and Duquesne as a spy for the Boers. The two men were actually given missions to kill one another during the conflict, although uh, they probably never knew each other personally. So that brings up the question of how did they both end up working to bring hippos to Louisiana? So we're going to tell that story, starting with talking about Burnham. And first, though, we're going to have a brief word from a sponsor. So Frederick Russell Burnham, as we said, we're going to talk about him in a bit more detail, was born in southern Minnesota in 1861. 
So during the Dakota War of 1862, and even after that, the Burnhams often found themselves in danger uh, being white settlers in this area. And at times, Frederick's father, who was actually a Presbyterian minister, would arm himself to protect his wife and child against attacks that were sometimes made on white settlers. And there were several times they found themselves in danger of being attacked. When Frederick was two and his father Edwin was away, his mother, Rebecca, saw a group of Lakota men emerging from the forest near their home. She knew that she could not run from them while also carrying a toddler, so she hid Frederick in a pile of corn and told him to stay still and be quiet. She then ran six miles, which is a little less than ten kilometers. Uh, meanwhile, the Lakota men she had seen burned the house down, but little Frederick stayed quiet and still, as he had been instructed to do. And he was still waiting there silently in the corn pile the next morning when his mother got back. Yeah, that's one of those incidents where when he recounted it later, he would say that was like the beginning of his training as a scout and a a spy. (laughs) Uh, He stayed tough as nails throughout his childhood. At the age of nine, he actually punctured a lung when a log fell on him. But he recovered and he continued to be very adventurous. He, his spirit did not seem dampened by this injury at all. Uh, the family moved briefly to California a couple of years later, although uh, Edwin did not live much longer than that. And after his death, Rebecca returned east. And Frederick, who was only 13 at the time, decided he was going to stay behind and get a job, in part to pay off the money that Rebecca had had to borrow to finance her travel back home. He is sort of famed for often riding horse after horse to exhaustion. So he would basically just ride a horse till it couldn't go anymore. He wouldn't take a break. He would just switch to a new mount when that previous one was exhausted. And then he would continue to run messages. And he worked from a base of operations in Los Angeles. And from there, he ran routes out to Anaheim, Santa Monica, and Pasadena. So he just was kind of this tireless hardworking, super adventurous kid. And again, he was only 13 when he was doing all of this. When he was 14, he briefly lived with relatives in Clinton, Iowa. But he became bored and restless pretty quickly, so he ran away a year later. He made his way down the Mississippi in a stolen canoe, eventually ending up in Texas. There, he met an old scout named Holmes, who taught him all about how to make his way through varying types of terrain. Holmes and other old-timers in the area gave Burnham a whole education in the skills he would need in survival. Uh, and, you know, gave him the knowledge that he would need to prosper on his own. Burnham also became a really expert shooter during this time. He actually practiced to shoot ambidextrously so that he would have uh, equal skill in both hands. And he really got to a point where he had great precision. He also trained himself to handle almost any hardship he might encounter on missions as a scout. So he trained himself to go without food, sleep, and water, to endure great pain, and allegedly he trained himself to slow his own heartbeat. And he developed this unique food source uh, that he would use throughout his life uh, that enabled him to travel fairly light and stealthily and also... So he would not have to cook as he traveled, because if you are trying to travel on the down low, you don't want to be starting a campfire. So to do this, he would pulverize dried venison into a powder, and then he would mix that powder with flour and bake this into little loaves that he could put in his his little bag. And he could eat a little bit of it each day and keep himself going. This sort of made me think of it being the Wild West Scout version of Lembus. (laughs) 
I always think that uh, Lembus is a vegetarian food, but, you know, that's just me. Well, just in that it's like this thing that's very sustaining and that you can carry for long periods of time. And right, right. It wasn't so much the content that made no. me think of Limbus. So he tried his hand at searching for gold in the American Southwest, but he only met with success one time. He used the money that he got from this one success to go back to Iowa, where he returned to a young lady named Blanche Blick. The two of them got married and moved to Pasadena to start a citrus grove. They weren't very successful at doing this, though, and his restlessness eventually led him to seek adventure again. This time, he headed for Africa with his wife and their infant son, Roderick. The three of them departed on New Year's Day, 1893, and eventually landed in South Africa. Uh, So while he was not a particularly big man, his reputation was enormous. And he first made a name for himself as a freelance scout. So for a price, he would, for example, creep into enemy territory in search of information. He would patrol for interlopers. He would perform discreet acts of sabotage. And he eventually got the nickname King of Scouts for his skill and his stealth. And he was described by the military men he sometimes served as being half jackrabbit and half wolf. He was also pretty disarming in social situations. He loved to tell stories of his adventures in Africa and in the American Indian territories. One tale of his skill at entertaining a gathering goes that he was, you know, spinning a tale at one of his skirmishes that he'd been in in Africa. And at one point in the middle of the story, he said, we'll kill that snake when I finish this story. And then he gestured casually to a rattlesnake that had been heading toward the group and their outdoor gathering. But no one else had noticed it before that point. Yeah, just cool as a cucumber. I'm going to get to that snake. Let me finish what I was saying, uh, which then becomes a wonderful, hilarious story in and of itself. It's probably no surprise, then, that a man like Burnham, who was full of swagger and this sort of old-school machismo, was friends with Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, I swear I did not mean to make a Roosevelt series, because I know we just talked about Alice, but... In fact, Burnham made friends with a lot of people in high places, particularly if they were men that were like him, that were drawn to adventure. They He just kind of always connected with those kinds of people. While he was traveling in Rhodesia, he became friends with Englishman Robert Baden-Powell, And eventually, Baden-Powell would found the Boy Scouts, inspired in part by Burnham's adventurous spirit and fortitude. And we're going to continue to talk about Burnham's life and the time he spent in Africa, as well as his activities once he returned to the U.S. after we have a brief word from one of our sponsors. So people listening to this podcast are probably not surprised that we are lifelong learners, just like a lot of you also are. And that's one of the reasons why we really genuinely love The Great Courses. We've really enjoyed watching their lecture series, Master of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers, by Professor Andrew Wilson. This uh, really chronicles the earliest examples of military strategy and how these same principles apply to conflicts today. There's actually an entire section about uh, the, the evolution of air power uh, in the theory and practice of war, because Mankind had been fighting wars on land and water at that point for hundreds of years. And now all of a sudden, airplanes <laughs> and dirigibles and zeppelins and that kind of thing uh, all really changed the whole landscape of how conflict played out. Yeah, and that's just been in the last hundred years or so that we've been kind of figuring out that whole new angle to strategic thinking as it relates to warfare. So we talked about how Burnham was eating these, like, 
fried venison cake things. And he continued throughout his life to eat other odd stuff in the interest of not letting his stomach get in the way of what he needed to do. He would live off of milk and ox blood or stolen uncooked corn during his adventures in Africa, even if these were misery to eat. Yeah, if you've ever eaten uncooked corn, like fresh, not even entirely ripe corn, that is not easy to eat. There are also stories that he would sometimes eat rotten produce that had been discarded that he would kind of snatch so that he would stay on the DL, keep himself fed, but not not necessarily in the most delightful or yummy of ways. Uh, and while the Burnhams were actually in Africa, they had a second child, a daughter named Nada. And the family was actually caught in the conflict of the Second Matabili War when they were living just outside the city of Bulawayo. And this conflict, combined with a horrible livestock virus, actually resulted in a huge tragedy for Frederick. So while this colony that they were in was constantly under siege, his two-year-old daughter, Nada, developed an intense fever, and she eventually died. And uh, when Burnham identified the leader of the uprising that had been behind this attack on the colony, he is said to have tracked him to a cave where he shot him. And Burnham would later write that he, the whole time this conflict was happening with this man where he was killing this man. He had these visions of his wife clutching their dying daughter, and that sort of drove him to this murder. He left Africa the following year, chasing rumors of gold once again, but then he abandoned that enterprise when he was called back to Africa to serve in the Second Boer War. After that war was over, he spoke with a great deal of respect about the Boers, and especially uh, he was impressed with their lead scout, and another man reporting to the lead scout who went by the name Black Panther of the Veld. He would later say that the Black Panther, who he'd actually spent the war trying to kill, was the craftiest man he had ever met. And in truth, that Black Panther was Fritz Duquesne. As we said at the top of the episode, they had actually been assigned to kill each other so that they could eliminate these very stealthy scouts the other side each had. Burnham had actually been captured during this conflict, but he managed to avoid being identified by showing how very smart and philosophical he was, since he knew that the description the Boers had of him described him as an oafish American. And so he kind of led this brief double life. But he eventually made an escape in the dark of night, and he spent the next weeks cutting the Boers' supply lines and blowing up their railways. After dodging a great deal of fire while he was hunkered down in the brush, Burnham was eventually retrieved by British forces, and he was sent to England to be treated for his injuries. He actually met Winston Churchill on the ship to London. Soon, Blanche and the couple's third child, Bruce, joined him. Another tragedy struck, though, because young Bruce later drowned in the Thames. Their oldest son, Roderick, at this point was 19 and was in school in California. He'd actually had a premonition about Bruce's death, which he relayed to his grandmother before they got the news of the child's passing. The Burnhams returned to Pasadena once uh, Frederick was recovered and they were still grieving. Uh, so they were mourning and regrouping there. And it was during this time that the scout began working on an article that he would eventually publish in early 1910. And that article was called Transplanting African Animals. And this article, once it came out, immediately got people talking. And because of the meat shortage, all kinds of people wanted to speak with Frederick Burnham. And that's where we're going to cliffhang this one. In our next episode, we are going to talk more about how Burnham and another wild character worked with Robert Broussard to try to bring hippos to the United States as livestock, which still is a terrible idea. (laughs) 
but also terribly funny to think about. Um, <laughs> it's funny, except that hippos are actually really aggressive and territorial. And they well, we'll get just to that. Murdered sort of. people. So, Oddly, yes. that gets left out of a lot of the discussion. Uh, but in the meantime, I have a couple of pieces of listener mail. And I selected these because both of these are uh, people that wrote us about some interesting creative endeavors that they have done related to podcasts that we have also talked, uh, related to podcasts that we've done in the past. Uh, the first one is from our listener, Bradford Johnson. And he says, thank you for your recent presentation on S.A. Andre and his ill-fated balloon expedition. I was delighted to hear your report on this event as I mounted an art show around Strindberg's photographs called Tangible Dreams of a Dying Explorer in 2011. This was a large-scale installation that wove my paintings with the photographic work of my colleague C.E. Courtney around Strindberg's images. We found the story compelling and illuminating in so many ways. Your exposition of this topic comes full circle for me as I am a longtime listener to the podcast cast as I was undoubtedly tuned in when I was creating those paintings. Uh, this is so cool. And I went to Bradford's uh, site, which is bradfordjohnson.net. And you can see some of this work that he did. And it is absolutely beautiful. And I encourage people to do it. It is so gorgeous. And it's just another neat way to see how um, this piece of history has been interpreted by the modern eye and, and through art. And it's just another really cool way to engage with it. Our other listener mail is from our listener, Sandy, and she writes, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I am fairly new to your podcast and thoroughly enjoy listening when I am walking around my home, uh, my hometown in Pullman, Washington. She says, while I'm intrigued by all your podcasts, I especially related to the episode titled The Woman Who Turned to Soap. My husband is a playwright, and in the late 1990s, he created a play entitled, oddly enough, The Woman Who Turned to Soap which was based on the untimely death of Hattie Illingsworth, whose body floated to the top of Lake Crescent in 1940. Our small theater group had originally found the story in Jessica Amanda Salmonson's 1995 book entitled Phantom Waters. While the ghost tale in this book is fanciful, the true details of the story intrigued us. We worked on the play for a year and a half and ultimately toured it around the Northwest and performed in the Seattle Fringe Festival in 1997. During our research on the story, we uncovered some newspaper archives in Port Angeles, Washington, and we spoke to the medical student, Harlan McNutt, who was mentioned in your piece. He was in his 90s when we met him, and it was obvious that he loved talking about Hattie's discovery. He was a true gentleman of his era. He told us how excited everyone was when Hattie's body floated to the top of Lake Crescent. He described the body as friable with the consistency of ivory soap. One of the men pried open her mouth with a piece of firewood so they could get a look at her teeth for dental records, which is how she was eventually identified. As I recall, he said that a piece of her jaw broke off. He also said that Hattie was wrapped in a blanket and was wearing, quote, excuse my language, ladies, panties, end quote, which she says is charming. Their play was uh, mixed media. It had live theater, slides, music and video. Uh with a mythic sort of Lady of the Lake take on the real events of the day. And it began with a hand-washing ritual that was uh, meant that they invited the audience uh, into the sort of the world of the story. She says, if we didn't use ivory soap, we certainly should have. Lake Crescent itself is considered eerie, and we were told that the native Kalalums refused to fish there. However, I don't know if that's really true. The lake is rather spooky, though, or maybe we were just spooked by our own research. Uh I love it. Sandra, thank you so much. That's a really, really cool way, again, to engage with history. So uh, if you're doing plays or anything based on uh, any of the topics we've covered, I highly encourage you to write us about them because I love hearing about those kinds of projects. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast 
at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also write us at Facebook.com slash History, on Twitter at History, and MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Pinterest.com slash History. so I can't wait to pin hippo photos. Uh, you can also visit MissedInHistory.Spreadshirt.com if you would like to purchase some stuff you missed in history class goodies for yourself or your friends. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, sort of, you can go to our parent site, House Stuff Works, type in the word hippo, and one of the articles that comes up is, How Does a Hippo Make Its Own Sunscreen? Uh, if you would like to read that, I highly encourage you to do so. You can also visit us at our home on the web, mistinhistory.com, where we have show notes, the full archive of all of our uh, episodes going way back to even before Tracy and I were ever involved in the show, uh, and a whole lot more. So we encourage you to do a little extra research at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>